Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I have a busy work week, and by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm tired. So how about a church service that starts when I get there? Can do. When you arrive, we begin. This guy, he plays by his own rules. We want to find a church where if he starts screaming, we're not the bad guys, right? Say no more. If your baby's screaming, you stay seated. The others around you can leave. You know, financially, Sherry and I don't give a lot to the church, but we'd sure like to know who does. All right, if you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. When I'm in the church service, can my car get a buff and a wax? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up. Hey, how about tickets to the Super Bowl? That's asking too much. I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game. All right, you join now, and we'll get you there. I like a pony. Look in your backyard. Me Church, where it's all about you. All right, so how many of you want to vote that we turn Freedom's Church into Me Church? I think there's a part of us that would kind of like to be in a place like that, that caters to our own personal preferences and our own, our own personal desires. I mean, that's, that's a big part of what our culture is about. It's about saying, well, you can do whatever you want, your way, right away. And have it, you know, if you have a personal preference or desire, we'll seek to meet that. But I think on the other hand, when we really look into what that type of place would be like, whether it's a church or a family or an organization or a workplace, we recognize that wouldn't really work very well, would it? I mean, on one hand, it would be chaos because you'd have everyone kind of pulling in their own separate direction. In addition, um, I don't think it would be a very warm, friendly place because uh, people would be so, so, so self-centered, they'd only be focused on their own priorities and on what they want rather than how can they serve others, how can they help others feel welcome, how can they care for others. In many ways, it would be a place full of spoiled brats. And, I mean, we know no, no one really wants to be around a bunch of spoiled brats, even though sometimes it's fun to be a spoiled brat. Um, I mean, who wouldn't want free Super Bowl tickets from their church? But, but we recognize that's probably not a place that we would really want to be. That wouldn't be a very healthy church, would it? But it does beg the question of what is a healthy church? How has God designed the church to operate? What has God designed the church to be? Now, this is a massive question that's definitely beyond the scope of only our time together this morning. But it is a question that I think is worth scratching the surface on. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20 this morning. Acts 20. If you didn't bring a Bible but would like to follow along, you can grab one from the pew or the chair in front of you. And today we're continuing our, our Turning Point series. We're actually nearing the end of the series. Uh, it's a series where we're looking at the early church and asking what were the key events and the significant shifts that took place in the early church to accelerate the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And today we're coming to, to Acts chapter 20, and the turning point we're looking at today is, is called Building God's Church to Last. Building God's Church to Last. Now, I recognize that on one hand this is kind of a misleading title, Building God's Church to Last, because it kind of makes it sound like there's a question of will God's church really last or not? And we need to recognize there's not really a question of whether or not the church is going to last and endure over time. Because God has already promised it will. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, I will build my church 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So there's no question of whether God's church will last. And in fact, we see Christianity uh, flourishing and really growing in significant ways throughout the world. I think especially of South America and Africa and Asia. The church is growing like crazy. Although we do look at places like North America and especially Europe, and the church is struggling a bit more. Christianity is not having as much of an influence on individuals or on society. And so that leads to the real point of this topic of building God's church to last. And that's talking about, in our particular context, in America, in Ozaki County, here at Freedens, are we building uh, the church in such a way, are we partnering with God in such a way that our Christian faith is being passed on to the next generation so that then it will be passed on to the next generation and then the next one after that? That's what we're looking at this morning, is asking how can we build... Um, the church in such a way, how can we pass on the Christian faith in a way that it will go on to further generations down the line? I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to look in Acts chapter 20 to see what Paul has to say on this topic. Lord Jesus, we know that you said you will build your church, and we thank you that you have entrusted us with the responsibility of partnering with you in the process of helping to build your church. We know that the church is not ultimately about buildings, physical structures. I mean, this, this sanctuary that we're in right now, the physical structure has been around longer than any of us have been alive, Lord. We know that buildings can oftentimes outlast the congregations that, that inhabit them. Today, Lord, we're talking about how can we build people. And we pray that you will help us, Lord, to see how we can build people, build ourselves, build the future generations as Christ followers who faithfully pour their faith into others so that you will be building your church in our midst, in our community and impacting more and more people with the gospel. So we pray that you'll give us open hearts, open minds to understand what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 20 contains kind of like Paul's farewell journey. Uh, he's nearing the end of his ministry, at least as it's recorded in Acts. There are a number more chapters that we will get to in coming weeks. Uh, but Paul is basically on his farewell journey because he sees that the end is near. He senses that the tides are turning, that there is increasing opposition against his ministry. And he senses uh, through the Holy Spirit and, and perhaps through other uh, prophets who the Holy Spirit is leading to, 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 guide, to tell Paul that, that his end is near. Paul's recognizing that as soon he's going to be imprisoned. Soon his life is going to be in jeopardy. Um, and so he's on this farewell tour visiting churches that he has planted years before. And in our passage today, he's visiting with elders of, a, of the church of Ephesus. Last week, we looked at how Paul planted the church in Ephesus. He spent three years there uh, investing in Christians there and also in spreading the gospel, not only in Ephesus, but in the surrounding regions. And now Paul is on this farewell journey. He's just been in Corinth. He's traveling through various places. And he comes to a place called Miletus, which is a city in the coastal region of Turkey. It's about a day's journey from Ephesus. And as he and his crew and the ship are there at Miletus, he sends for the Ephesian elders to come to him so that he can have some more sweet time with them and then commission them, pray for them, as he knows that he will probably not see them again in this lifetime. So we're going to actually read the entire passage beginning in Acts 20, verse 17, going through the end of the chapter. And it says that from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I have lived the whole time I was with you, 
from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you, none, none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I, have, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. Uh, what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. So this is a, a passage that shows Paul's interactions with the elders who are the leaders of the churches there in Ephesus. And there's a lot that's here in this passage, a lot that could be said about it, but specifically today I want to point out three principles that can help us to build God's church in a way that will endure down through the generations. Because God isn't interested in seeing uh, the church just fizzle out after one generation, after two generations. And it's really quite remarkable that Christianity has endured through the course of the last 2,000 years and is continuing to go strong. And much of it is because of the principles we're going to be talking about here in this passage today. And the first principle that we see from Paul is the importance of living with humble, generous authenticity. Humble, generous authenticity. We see here that Paul begins by defending his ministry. Through the course of Paul's ministry, he faced a lot of opposition. Uh, a lot of people didn't like his preaching about Jesus. And especially the Jewish people didn't like that he was preaching that Jesus is the Messiah because Jesus was not the type of Messiah that they were looking for. And the Roman rulers didn't like, well, didn't like Paul's preaching about Jesus either because it really upset the status quo of the empire. And so there are a lot of people with vested interest in opposing Paul. And he did face a lot of opposition. Opposition. Even last week when Paul was in Ephesus, we saw that there was a riot that arose involving tens of thousands of people because they didn't like his preaching about Jesus and the effects that Jesus was having on the society there in Ephesus. 
We've seen in previous weeks in the book of Acts, there were times that he was imprisoned, that Paul was beaten because he was preaching about, about Christ. There was one time that he was stoned and left for dead because people didn't like him preaching about Jesus. So he faced a lot of direct opposition to his face. But the opposition did not end when Paul moved on to another city. People would then begin to, to create a smear campaign against Paul's character and Paul's ministry. And really, these types of activities shouldn't surprise us all that much. I mean, this is just human character that when someone doesn't like someone else or someone else's message, they'll do everything they can to tear them down. You think about political ads on TV during election season. I mean, we know that, that people will stop at no ends to tear down their opponents. I mean, it gets really ugly. I mean, it's, it gets to the point where you really wonder, is anyone trustworthy? I mean, because even if people, even if they make good decisions themselves, I mean, they're tearing down their opponent in really ugly ways right there in front of us. I think about the power of gossip. Uh, gossip is when you talk about someone else in a derogatory way uh, behind their back and, and when they aren't there present. One of the reasons that gossip is so destructive is that the people are not there to actually defend themselves or to set the record straight. And this is exactly what's happening to Paul. As he moves on from one town to the next, people begin to talk about him. People begin to sow seeds of discord. People begin to, to call his character into question, call his motives into question, question whether or not he really has a ministry that's from God. And so Paul, here in Acts 20 and also in other places throughout the New Testament, has to defend his character in his ministry. If you want to see one of the other places, read, read 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is largely about Paul defending his ministry because people are attacking his ministry and his character. So Paul begins here uh, by defending his ministry, and he shows, he says, you know, I serve the Lord with great humility. And even with tears, his heart was fully engaged in what he was doing. I mean, he was severely tested, but he kept pressing on. He said, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. And he says, look, I was preaching the same thing in public as I was from house to house. There's integrity in what I was teaching. And he, he, he was also pointing to his motives. He, he said, I wasn't coveting people's silver or their gold or their clothing. You know, I worked hard. He worked as a tent maker during the day while he was in Ephesus. And then in the afternoons, he would preach and teach in the Hall of Tyrannus, as we talked about last week. But he worked hard to supply for his own needs. He wasn't depending on others to whom he was ministering at that point for support. So he was a man of integrity. He's saying, look, you know these things. You know I was working hard, that I was uh, caring for those who were weak. I was showing through my hard work that we need to care for others. He's showing that, that he, he was living with a humble and a generous sort of authenticity. I think it's especially powerful here that he starts out several of these phrases with things like, you know how I lived. You know what I did while I was among you. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied for my own needs. He's pointing to how he had a very personal, intimate connection with these people. They, they rub shoulders from day to day. He's saying, look, you didn't just hear my teaching. You saw how I lived. I was living as a man of integrity, a man of character. I was living with this humble, generous authenticity. And I think this is very important because character is really the foundation of a healthy ministry or even a healthy life. You think about the process of building a house. 
After you get the plans to run up, the first thing that you build in a house is the foundation. Because you know that if the house doesn't have a good foundation, you can build this really fancy-looking house, and for a while it's going to look really good from the outside. But if the house is not built on a foundation, as the ground shifts, cracks are going to begin to form in the house. And over time, the house is not going to be safe to live in. Over time, the house is going to start to crumble in the fall. That's what happens when there's not a foundation. It's the exact same on a life or ministry at church that is not built on solid character, on a humble, generous authenticity, on, on a life of integrity. It'll come crumbling down. I, I think of, and I'm humbled by so many people down through history and even in our world today whose lives, whose families, whose ministries, who work, whose workplaces and churches have come crumbling down because of a lack of character as the foundation of their life and their ministry. I mean, let me just list a few names that are probably familiar to each one of us. They are all in the church world, but um, it's just as prevalent in the church world as elsewhere. Lance Armstrong, Pete Rose, Richard Nixon, Barry Bonds, Bernard Madoff, Ted Haggard. These are just a list of well-known names in the last few decades. People who had a lot going for them. Very, very gifted and talented people. Very significant positions of influence. But character did them in. Character did them in. And it's the same for us. If we as individuals, we as a church, are not building our lives on character that is humble and generous and authentic, things are going to come crumbling down over time. If you aren't building on a foundation of character, you aren't building for the long haul. And this makes a difference. I think it's important that we ask ourselves, okay, am I living a life of character? Am I living a life that is worth imitating, uh, not just when people see me, but also when people don't see me? Because that's what character is all about. And this has a lot of prevalence if you are in any sort of ministry leadership here in church, but also has relevance anywhere else in life as well. I think about parenting. It's important that parents live with character in, in terms of their relationship with their children because children will model what they see in their parents. I mean, it even has to do with faith. I, I think most Christian parents want to see their children grow up to love Christ wholeheartedly. But in order for children to grow up to, to love Christ wholeheartedly, the best thing that parents can do is for parents to model that, not just to go through the motions of doing church stuff, but to actually love Christ themselves. I've seen times here at Freedens where parents will bring their children to Sunday school on a Sunday morning, drop off their children, and then the parents walk right, out, right back out the door, get in their car, and go somewhere. And then an hour later, they come back and pick up their children and go home. And they, they, they're trusting the church to disciple their children. When at home, odds are good, there's very little discipleship going on. What those parents are doing when they do that is setting up their children to later on in life, either walking away from God or just going through the motions in their faith. Parents need to live a life of character and model what it means to walk with God and model, model integrity if they want their children to model those same values. And this also brings in the question of, okay, how are we living just in our general lives? I mean, one thing I think is important to bring up is the impact of social media in today's culture, especially things like Facebook and Twitter. It's amazing how as the world becomes more connected electronically, first through email, now through Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that, it gives people so much opportunity to just vent out in public and also to tear other people down out in public. It's amazing 
what you sometimes see on Facebook, people saying things that, you know, they, they really should never have been said anywhere, especially where hundreds or thousands of people can see it. I mean, you see things written on Facebook that are just rants and raves that then are an hour or two or a day or two later are taken down because they realize, you know, I never should have said that. But it shows character. And it shows that we need to be very careful of how we portray ourselves. And realistically, if something comes out there on Facebook or on Twitter, it ultimately shows what's going on in our hearts, that we need to address deeper issues in our hearts. I mean, if you followed the sports world this last week, you probably know that um, on Twitter, I mean, even well-known big-name people have problems with this. Uh, in the New York Yankees, Alex Rodriguez and the general manager of the Yankees got in this Twitter battle of both saying things that really should have never been said on Twitter. And now if you go on ESPN.com, you see them um, kind of backing up a little bit, trying to take the things back that, that are out there that never should have been said. Character is so important in laying a foundation for, for generations, for legacy to live on, whether it's in our lives or in church. And we see Paul here in this passage as he defends his ministry, he points to his character, points to his humble, generous authenticity. And that's something that we need to also think about if we want to live lives and build a church that will stand the test of time. So that's the first point, the first principle for us. The second principle is the importance of passionately making disciples until our dying day if we want to build a church that will stand the test of time. Passionately make disciples until your dying day. Paul knew that his time was limited. This, uh, this here in Miletus is probably taking place around 57 or 58 AD. Within just a few years, Paul would be beheaded in Rome. I mean, he, he lived in uh, house arrest for, many, for a number of years before he was beheaded. Um, but he's going to be arrested not, not too long after this. He knew that his time was limited. But he wasn't concerned that, that his time on earth may be limited. What he was concerned about was making Christ known and helping more people become followers of Jesus. He said, however, in verse 24, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Like I said, Paul, he wasn't worried that his time on earth may be limited. He was only worried about making the most of every opportunity to point people to Christ and to help people to grow as followers of Christ. Paul's mentality was so different than what we oftentimes see here in the Western world. Here in the Western world, we have this thing called retirement, where you work for a few decades, but you look forward to that time, say, when you turn 60, 65, 68, that you can put the work world behind you and that you can begin to relax. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with basic retirement. But the problem comes when we feel like that gives us the, the opportunity to also retire from being a disciple and making disciples. Because nowhere in Scripture do we have the freedom before our last breath on this earth to decide we're going to take it easy from church or from making disciples or being a disciple. There's no retirement from disciple-making. I've, I've heard people say before, you know, I've taught Sunday school before. I did that years ago. I used to be very active in church, did this or this or that. And I think, you know, that, that's great. I'm sure that God worked through that to impact many people. But if you're still breathing, God wants to work through you now. And unfortunately, 
Um, I mean, we have to recognize, okay, as you get older, it may be a little bit harder to reach over and pick up a little child. As you get older, um, I mean, there may be some things you don't relate to as well in today's culture. But a walk with God is timeless in the sense of, of Scripture stays the same. And unfortunately, as you get, unfortunately, if you disengage, you're actually wasting some of the best uh, years, the best opportunities of life. Because um, if you have walked with God for decade upon decade and have gained experience and wisdom that comes with walking from God and having gaining life experience, you have so many spiritual riches that you can pass on to others. And unfortunately, uh, for various reasons, people begin to check out. Sometimes it's because of, of pressure from a church that, that thinks that, okay, older people need to begin to check out and pass, pass it on to younger people, and, and older people can just kind of sit back. Or sometimes the older generations think, well, I don't really need to um, do that anymore. I, I've put in my time. Now someone else can do it. I've worked hard. But that's not the way God designed it. Remember back when I was in high school, I was, I was in track all four years of high school. My freshman year, there was one particular track meet. I remember nothing about the track meet except for one event. And I wasn't even running in that event that day. It was the 1,600 meters, the one-mile run. And there was another freshman out there running that event. Long distances, even though I was a long-distance runner all, all through high school, long distances were not that strong in my school. And, and for this particular track meet, there was a guy thrown in there to run the mile um, who, you know, he was kind of dabbling in longer distances, but he wasn't exactly your long-distance runner. He, he's built more like a, a football player, like a tight end or a linebacker, not so much like a long-distance runner. But he was thrown in there. He, I mean, he'd practiced some for the mile. And so he was thrown in there on that day. Mile is four laps around the track. He ran two laps, and then you see him exit the track. Next thing you know, I mean, he's sitting up here right in front of me in the bleachers, and the, 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 the race is still going on down there. He decided just to bow out of the race before the end. And I guess he got tired, decided, you know, this is too hard. He definitely wasn't uh, threatening leaders in any way. I mean, he was well back. But you, you kind of knew, okay, this is not going to be the end of the story with this. Coach is not going to let this slide. We didn't see Coach anywhere around there. Um, I don't know where he was, but somehow he found out what, what this young man had done. And so next thing you know, about five minutes after the race was over, Coach comes up into the stands and is like, Wyatt, come here. And then, you know, this isn't good news for Wyatt. Um, next thing you know, I don't know exactly where they were. They were somewhere back, I think, behind the bleachers. But you could definitely hear what was going on. Um, Wyatt was getting a pretty big chewing out. And the main theme of it was you do not quit until the race is over. You finish the race. You don't quit till it's done. And that's the theme for all of our lives. I'm not saying God's going to chew us out if we stop before our race is done. But it's the theme of we don't quit until we take our last dying breath on this earth. If you still have breath, God has things he wants to do through you to make disciples. And you have so much to offer. He wants to work through every one of us to help build other people up in their faith. One of the best examples I've seen of that is one of my seminary professors, John Nyquist. Um, now, he definitely wasn't the oldest guy you can ever be around. He was about, I think he was 72 when I graduated from seminary. And so that puts him today in probably 76 or so. Um, so I know that there are people who are older than him, but he was the oldest professor at my seminary. And um, about a year after I graduated, he retired um, 
I mean, I think it was a joint decision, just it was time for him to move on. And I've corresponded with him via email uh, since then, periodically, just to kind of catch up and see what's going on. I want to read you a portion of one of his emails. And I was just asking, okay, how's retirement going? He's living down in Alabama these days. Um, he said, retirement is relative, of course. I'm retired from regular service at TED's Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, but our continuing staff relationship with Crew Campus Crusade for Christ, keeps me busy. I've, I've met personally with each one of the campus directors at Alabama, Auburn, and with a couple other campuses. In fact, I'm teaching a weekly Bible study at one of these campuses every Tuesday night. I'm doing Mark's Gospel, and the students are loving it. Um, I'm also doing book reviews for these couple different magazines. And I know right now as we speak, he's out in Colorado this summer teaching uh, several months um, at a training school for Campus Crusade for Christ staff. So even though he is retired from his, his job that he had for 30 years of teaching at seminary, he's still very active in ministry. I think this is a good model for each one of us. Like I said, I know that, that you may be thinking, okay, 76 years old, he's still a youngin'. He still has a lot of years to go. Um, I also look at people here in this congregation, people who um, are his age or even significantly older, who are still running the race. People who are still seeking to invest in other people's lives spiritually. And I say, way to go. That's the way it should be. But I think what a model uh, to lay out in front of us, whether it's the Apostle Paul or Dr. Nyquist or others here in our midst who are not going to stop running the race until their dying breath. And that is something that is absolutely essential. If we want to build a church that stands the test of time, that passes on our faith to the next generation, then we have this mentality that until God takes us home, we are going to keep seeking to make disciples. Now I want to move on to the third principle, which is also a very important one for us. It's that if we want to build a church that stands the test of time, that we need to empower others to build God's people. Not just try to do it ourselves, but empower others. Remember the context of what's taking place here in Acts 20. Paul has assembled the elders, or the primary leaders, of the churches there in Ephesus. He is not trying to take the reins of the churches himself. He's not telling them all the minute details of you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do that. Because he had spent three years with them there in Ephesus, building them up, preparing them, training them, teaching them, equipping them, and empowering them, and, and delegating authority to them so that they could go out and carry on the ministry for themselves. He was delegating authority to those around him because he knows he can't do it all himself. He knows he won't be around forever. He knows that the church is not going to be that strong if it all depends on him. Now, when I look at this passage, I think verse 28 may be the crux, the central point of the whole thing. He commissions them. And he says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God. So he says, first of all, keep watch over yourselves. And that points back to this idea of character, that, that first of all, if you want to be a disciple maker, you need to be a disciple, that you are watching that foundation of your life, that you're walking with God, that you're living a life of character and integrity. And then he says, not only keep watch over yourselves, but also all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Here Paul is using an analogy of a shepherd who is watching over the sheep. This is an analogy that's prevalent throughout Scripture. But being a shepherd um, means that, that you're watching the sheep, that you're making sure the sheep get the food they need, that they are protected. 
And that's a big part of what Paul points out here. He says, I know after I leave, savage wolves are going to come and will not spare the flock. And so it's the shepherd's role to protect the flock. And moving out of the metaphor and into real church life, this means that the elders and the leaders of the church are called to protect the flock doctrinally, to protect the flock from people who are going to come in and try to distort God's word, protect the flock from divisive people or toxic people who want to drag others down. There is, there is a strong importance of protecting the flock among the leaders, and Paul is commissioning them to do this. Now, there's another very interesting phrase in here that's easy just to gloss over, but I want to point it out. It says, Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. This is pointing to what Christ did on the cross. That Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sins, to buy people back out of captivity from sin, slavery to sin, buy them for God and his kingdom. This shows that even though we can care a lot about church, I mean, you know, I care a lot about this church. God cares even more because he bought it with the blood of Jesus Christ. So Paul is focused here on delegating authority to these, uh, to these elders and to others. And this is a, really a pattern throughout his whole ministry that he's not trying to hold in all the authority and the power himself. He's trying to give it away to others to equip others to do the work of the ministry. You know, it's a lot easier to do it ourselves, isn't it? It's a lot easier to say, well, it's going to get done best. It's going to get done the way I want it to be done if I do it. And I admit, this is an easy mentality even for me to fall into. Um, I mean, I'm a relatively high-capacity person that can take on quite a bit of stuff. It's, it's a lot easier. It feels a lot safer. It feels like things will get done the way I want them to get done if I do it. But that's not the way that it's going to work the best overall long-term. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, that he said to Timothy, one of the people who had been following Timothy for many years, whom Paul empowered, he said, the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust those things to reliable men who will then be able to also teach others. So he's saying you need to um, not only keep things in for yourself, you need to entrust it to others who will then entrust it to others who will entrust it to still others. Empower people. Back when I um, had just graduated from college, I was thinking about this, and um, I had been very involved in campus ministry while I was in college and um, had the cool opportunity to really invest in a lot of people's lives. And, I mean, it was fun to see God work in people's lives. And, I mean, as I I was investing in their lives, they were investing in mine too. But about six months after I graduated, I had been reflecting on this idea of empowering others. And I realized, you know, I did all right at that, but I could have done better. And a lot of my friends were still there on campus, still involved in ministering to other college students. And I thought I was interacting with them regularly over email. And I sent them an email just encouraging them, empower others. I want to read to you a portion, uh, actually a significant portion, of the email that I sent to them. Just because I think it captures well this, this heart of empowering others. I said, and I sent it to really all the guys you see up there on that screen um, who were in Bible studies I was leading, who, I mean, were just good friends. I said, hey, one thing I wanted to share with you guys that God has been reminding me of lately. Make sure you're passing on the torch to the younger guys. And as we studied in 2 Timothy 2.2, that you're entrusting the things taught to you to other reliable men. I've had time to reflect on my time in campus ministry as a student, and that's one thing I wish I would have done more of. 
it's easy for me to take a lot of this stuff on my own shoulders, thinking it's easier and safer for me to do it than to, get, than to delegate it to others. Yet as leaders, the best thing we can do is to delegate responsibility to others so they'll be built up as well. I'm sure you already know this, but it's important to be passing, on, passing the torch on even well before you're done with college. Get the other guys deeply involved in things that honor the women. Teach them how to share their faith and how to teach others how to share their faith. Same thing with teaching people how to study the Bible. The things you know how to do well, teach someone else how to do those things well. Work yourself out of a job. Things will probably get done if you always try to do them, or if we always try to do them ourselves. And they may even get done well. But we'll leave a greater legacy and have a much deeper impact in the world if we entrust many things to others so they'll grow and learn how to pass them on. Discipleship is so incredibly important. That's just something that's been on my mind lately. If I could, I'd go back and do some things differently in these areas. Examples I think of are, and I list several different things I, I had been very active in in college, and then uh, I was saying, you know, I could have delegated that and empowered others to do that even better than I did. Then I concluded by saying, you know, I don't have any regrets about anything. I mean, I really didn't have regrets about it. I felt like I did a decent job. I gave it everything I had. It's just that hindsight gives me new wisdom, and wisdom is often learned through trial and error. Hope you don't mind my mini-sermon. Um, I wrote later, I meant for it to be relatively small, and then it just kind of grew. It's kind of how preachers and pastors can be sometimes. Um, there is a story earlier in Acts chapter 20, just before our passage of Paul preaching late into the night. There's this young man named Eutychus who's sitting in a third-story window. And, he, you know, as Paul goes on and on, it actually says Paul's going on and on. Eutychus gets kind of tired, nods off, falls out of the window. And, and requires a miracle to kind of revive him and get him back to health. But, no, that's kind of a, a mentality of pastors sometimes. Is you have time, you're going to make the most of it. But you can see there in that email, I mean, that was written 10-plus years ago, just to friends saying, you know, pass on the torch. Empower others. It's so much easier to try to hold it in and do it all yourself. But that's not how you're going to be able to pass on the faith to others. You need to empower others. There's a, a book, it's a secular business book out there called Good to Great. But I think it has a lot of helpful principles for ministry. And one of the things that, that Jim Collins in Good to Great talks about is what he calls a level five leader or level five executive. And he says in leadership, there are really five levels. I mean, you start out with just a, a highly capable individual. And on the very top, you have a level five ex executive. And he describes a level five executive is someone who builds enduring greatness through a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. Personally, they are very humble. They aren't afraid of who gets the credit. They're willing to, to empower others to do the work. They're fine if their name isn't on the big plaque or getting all the recognition themselves. But they have this professional drive, this professional will to see, um, see the company or to see the organization or to see the church and the gospel grow and do great. That's a level five leader. Jim Collins says most leaders, though, get stuck at the level four position. Level four of effective leader is someone who catalyzes commitment to and vigorous pursuit of a clear and compelling vision, stimulating higher performance standards. And this is someone who can be a very charismatic leader, uh, great at speaking, great at casting vision, great at getting others on board with the vision, uh, great at getting things done. 
But this person is not as great about empowering others. Oftentimes things revolve around that leader. And if that leader leaves, the organization leaves the church, things begin to struggle. He said very few people actually make it up to level five, which is more that empowering leader that's focused more on the good of the organization of the church than on their own leadership. But it's this level five leadership that Paul had because he was focused on empowering others, not just taking, uh, having everything revolve around him. And when we talk about this topic of empowering others, people sometimes wonder, okay, in a practical sense, how does this look? How do we empower others? Well, let me give you a very um, concrete kind of four-step process for how to empower others. And this is a process that you see, if you read through the Gospels, you see it in the life of Jesus with the disciples. You see it with Paul and the people who are around him. Here's a four-step process that applies pretty much to anything. First step, I do it. You watch. And then we talk about what we did or what I did and why we did it. Second step, I do it. You help, and then we talk more about it. Now, the third step is you do it, I will help, and then again, we talk about it more. Because you're talking about it, you're debriefing, you're talking about why do we do it this way, why don't we do it this way, maybe this way might be better. And then fourthly, you do, I watch, we talk. These are really the four steps to building someone up, to training someone, to empowering someone. It applies in ministry. It applies in business. It applies if you're trying to um, teach your child how to mow the yard or how to do something else, work in the car. It's just the standard, these standard principles of empowering others. But so many times in church we forget about this, that we just do it ourselves rather than seeking to empower and to build up others. And there is a next step beyond this. And that next step is that you do. Someone else watches you. Someone else is now your apprentice. But we still talk periodically. Because you maintain those lines of, of communication and accountability. Really the goal when you're creating a, a culture that empowers people, the goal is low control but high accountability. Where you're not trying to control everything, but where there's still accountability. Oftentimes when people hear about building an empowering culture, they get very scared of, okay, what if we have an individual or group that, who kind of goes rogue, who, who kind of goes off and does their own thing and they pull a lot of people off course? Well, realistically, if that happens, it means there's a short circuit somewhere in the process of empowering them. Either on the front end, they weren't trained well through this four-step process, or there was a lack of accountability on an ongoing basis. But if you empower them and train them in this way and have accountability, the odds are much less of someone going rogue or of anarchy ensuing. And you look at Paul. He was very focused on empowering people. He'd already spent three years with these guys in Acts chapter 20. And we see that throughout his life, he was investing in the lives of others. Earlier in Acts 20, um, he lists seven different guys who were with him. Acts 20 verse 4, it says that Paul was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. That's seven guys who were there with Paul as he's going on his missionary journey. Paul was very focused, just as Jesus was very focused on empowering others, of having them come along so he could model to them, he could show them what to do, they could debrief about it, and then they could begin to take more of the reins of ministry. This is also what Dr. Nyquist did, my seminary professor. I mean, he, he constantly had guys he was investing in. 
I was his grad assistant for three years, and he spent a lot of time investing in my life. And he, whenever he'd go anywhere, he'd take people with him. I went with him to college campuses throughout Chicago as he'd be teaching there. One time at church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, invited him up for a weekend just to give training uh, to their congregation and to their leaders. So he took me along with him to South Dakota for a weekend. Um, think of one time he, um, in his Foundations of Evangelism class to 60 seminary students, he enabled me to um, teach a training workshop in the class for evangelism. And then afterwards we debriefed about it. We talked, just like this, this empowering system talks about. That's what a discipler and a disciple maker does, is empower others, train them, equip them, so the faith is passed on to more and more generations. And if we want to build a church, a Christian community, that endures a time, the test of time where the faith is passed on through the generations. We need to live a life of character. We need to, to be passionate about proclaiming the gospel and making disciples till our dying day. We need to seek to actively empower those around us. Now, you may be thinking, okay, this applies a lot to the church leaders, but I'm not really in leadership right now. Well, in reality, God has called all of us to be in the process of making disciples and building others up. So these principles apply to all of us. You never know where God's going to lead you in the future. Uh, for the majority of my life, I never pictured myself being here as a pastor. I, I bet that if you went to our church council or, uh, council or our adult discipleship team or other leadership teams, you'd probably talk to the people in there and they wouldn't have said 10 years ago, oh yeah, I bet I'll be on the adult discipleship team. I bet I'll be on the church council. God has this way of calling people and we need to be equipped and ready for that time. And in the meantime, God wants to work through all of us to make this church into a disciple-making church where everyone has a role in building others up. This is the opposite of a me church. Me church, everything is centered around us. Here, everything is centered around making disciples and helping more and more people come to true life through Christ. And we all have a role in building up a disciple-making ministry that will last the test of time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you again that you are at work building your church. And we pray that you will work in each one of us to help us to be faithful in the process of making disciples. That we will not bow out of the race early. That we will not get so down on ourselves that we think, well, we don't have anything to offer. Because through your word and through your spirit, you are willing to equip us to make disciples. May we be faithful to that calling in Jesus' name. Amen.